Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chris Robertson, Vice President of U.S. Surface Transportation and Maritime Shipping with Deutsche Bank. I'd like to thank Capital Link for another great event this year, and it's certainly a, a humbling ask that they've, uh, they've asked me today to host this, this panel as a relatively young analyst in this industry uh, and joined by a, a panel of such distinguished and experienced leaders. So given the recent developments between two of the largest publicly traded tanker companies over the last few days, in addition to the uh, geopolitical situation unfolding in front of us, we've seen a spike of interest and re-engagement in the crew tanker space uh, from our clients after a seasonally weaker summer period, uh, in addition to the production cuts by OPEC that were extended into the end of the year. So given that, um, my, my first set of questions are going to look at the, the industry as it stands today. So let's turn to our excellent panel today, including CEO of International Seaways, Lois Abraki, Dr. Nikos Chakos, CEO of Chakos Energy Navigation, and Robert Burke, CEO of Victory Tankers. So let's take a look back before looking ahead, and uh, let's review the last few months of where we saw what appeared to be some normal seasonal rate seasonality. So I'd like to ask your thoughts, each of you, around this year's summer period, what would be considered normal versus what might have been driven by exogenous factors? Hello. Um, first of all, I'm, um, my name is Bob Burke, and I run Ridgebury Tankers. I'd like to announce that we have achieved net zero carbon. <laughs> Actually, not just net zero, but absolute zero. We're still working on scope three, but it's a long walk for me to the office, so that's going to have to wait a bit. Uh, for those of you who don't know us, we're, we're a private company, and we're sponsored by a variety of private equity firms. And we've sold uh, all of our tankers, some 28 tankers in the past 18 months. We started, uh, about this time last year, we started pretty aggressively selling tonnage, and we delivered the last ones in, in August. So um, I don't need to talk my book because I don't have one. But <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> it does give you clarity of purpose when you, you're thinking about getting back into the market. Um, but to answer your question, o over the summer, you know, what was. Uh, you know, what was exogenous, what was normal. Uh, you know, I have this theory in my head that everyone thinks what's normal is when they first entered whatever business they're in, and that sort of sticks in their head as, as equilibrium forever. Now, I could be wrong, but, you know, I started in shipping in 86 when markets were horrible, so I've always felt uncomfortable when they're really, really good, which sort of pushes me to make the sell decision when things are good. Um, I think the average rate for MRs prior to... Uh, the last upturn, it was about $15,250 a day for the past 20 years or so, something like that, right, guys? Yeah. Um, and and normal is not really fair. I mean, there is no average. You can drown in an average of an inch of water. But if you take that as, a, as an average or a normal, then anything above that has to do with the dynamics of the fleet, um, the economy, and, of course, of course, the Russian situation. So I would say at least half of that has to do with the Russian situation, just off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, Lois Sabraki, and, uh, you know, we have both uh, even split, really, crude and products, uh, 75 tankers. And I guess I would say that, you know, if you look at the summer rates, I don't disagree with Bob in the sense that, you know, but we do have very low worldwide inventories. We have recovered demand from COVID. 
And I say, like, when those lines cross, you know, you start to have more balance in the market. And then on top of that, you have all the displacement from, you know, the Russian production and, and the expansion of Ton Mile. And then on top of that, you just keep layering a lot of um, extra geopolitical tension. And all of that volatility tends to lead to higher highs in the market. Um, which you know we have we have seen this summer with very uh, strong performance across really all tanker segments from the V's down to the MRs. The V's actually less so. The Suez, Afras, Panamax is super strong. MR is super strong. I uh, said so it's almost um, the the smaller your vessel, the the higher your rates have been. Uh, but we do expect for you know that. V market to come into its own, and I think the the prior panel, you know, the investors really talked a little bit about that kind of a setup. Well, it's a hard duck to follow, but uh, in ten we're uh, I would say similar. Uh, Seventy ships uh, also divided uh, equally between products and uh, and crude. Uh, we did uh, what Bob did. Uh, Early in the year, we replaced uh, 10 of our uh, first generation. Uh, uh, most of the ships, or all the ships we operate, we build them the, ourselves. So all our 2005, 6, and 7 uh, MRs, or a big part of them, we sold in the early part of the year, almost at the same price as we built them uh, about uh, 17 or 16 years ago. So uh, the company, it's not secret, we have in excess of half a billion dollars in cash. Uh, so the summer, even if the market had a fluctuation, we were able to take a couple of days more extra holiday in Greece because of that, uh, of that market and because of the prospects being, uh, uh, as you rightly said very well, the supply and demand uh, equilibrium is the lowest in the 30 years I've been in the market. Uh, and I think that that's uh, something very positive going forward. And uh, we are trained in shipping uh, to be able to adapt to geopolitical events, and uh, there we are again. We're back uh, to the drawing board. We had three crises, one after the other. After the COVID in 2020, we were hit by the U Ukrainian situation, and, uh, and then uh, yeah, we have now trouble in the, in the Middle East again. Uh, going back uh, to your decision to divest the fleet, uh, left with zero tankers in this market. Hindsight being 2020, was that the right decision? Do you regret the decision? And how are you currently thinking about the market? Um, first, I don't always agree that hindsight's 2020, but I'll take that as it may. Uh, I think it was the right decision. Uh, as, I, as the pundits like to say, it remains to be seen. Um, our decision was that, by our calculation, there were at least two really good years of revenues priced into the assets when we decided to sell. And our assets are a bit older, and um, we will only take it off the table. And if someone else bought it and had three years of good revenues, they're going to make some good money. But given our entry point and the type of group that we are, it was time to sell. And I don't regret it. Yeah. Nikos, you brought up uh, the geopolitical issues. Let's turn to OPEC just briefly. Um, the data seems to indicate there's a difference between rhetoric around production cuts and actual product flows in the market being drawn down from inventories. Um, so, in your opinion, what has the true impact of these cuts been so far? Should the cuts end by the end of the year? Do you think we see more of a psychological response, or is there any lingering effects that might impact the market kind of going forward if they, if they decide to end those cuts? 
I think the, the more we go forward, the more I think it's more psychological. So you might get a, a couple of weeks of uh, charterers uh, taming down their demand for ships. Uh, but there are so many alternative uh, uh, supply uh, right now locations other than OPEC, other than the, than the traditional OPEC countries that, uh, that uh, fill up the gap. So, I mean, we see that. We see there's a, a two-week, uh, you know, uh, slower period when people are trying to redirect their cargoes and, uh, and taking a breather, but then the market comes back again, again because of the, of the supply and demand situations that we are facing, also uh, because of the increase in ton miles due to the geopolitical events. So in general, uh, I think as, as, as uh, uh, citizens of this world, we would rather have a, you know, make less profit and have a peaceful world where we're able to actually operate our ships freely around the world rather than uh, this uh, helter-skelter situation. But being, uh, uh, being uh, ship owners, we need to adapt in those two. Lois, maybe turning to you, can you comment on the expanding ton mileage we've seen from the expansion and production of, out of the Atlantic Basin that has somewhat offset the loss in OPEC production? Yeah, you know, in, uh, to some degree, it's a little bit of the reversion to what we had kind of expected to see uh, before, you know, we were hit with COVID and, and, you know, really the Russian war. And that being that you have the reemergence or the resurgence of emerging markets and demand from non-OECD and then more supply coming from OECD. So, you know, it's more preponderance of um, increased production out of Brazil and Guyana and U.S. Gulf and the North Sea. And the demand increases coming from, you know, the eastern markets, which tends to set up, you know, a stronger ton-mile picture for us. And one last question for Lois uh, in the geopolitical realm here. On the Russia front with um, production cuts on the product side, mm. will that impact uh, your fleet at all? What are your thoughts around there? Well, um, we've seen, you know, I think over the weekend or, you know, by, by last Friday, you know, uh, the Russians had resumed their uh, diesel exports or, you know, have allowed that to come back onto the market. Um, I, I think that it's very critical from what we read internally for that, you know, for the prices not to be uh, super strong within Russia, but they don't really have a lot of storage or um, a capacity internally for that diesel consumption, and so we've seen that um, start to come back into the market, although we have made the choice not to load Russian product uh, because uh, there is such uh, demand at the moment, you know, when that is off the market, that does impact, um, you know, rates across the entire fleet. Taking a, a higher level view for a minute, I know that myself and many of this audience have heard over the past few years about the rosy supply side picture. But let's turn more to the demand outlook. So looking at 2024, I have three questions and three panelists. So choose amongst yourselves which, which one to answer here. But what needs to continue to go right? What needs to improve further from here? And what could go wrong? You pick, Nick. Nikos? I, 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 well, I think what has to continue uh, also answers to what could be wrong. I think this is the first time in, uh, <clears throat> as I said, 30 years that I've been in the business that uh, ship owners have uh, shown uh, degrees of, uh, uh, of, of uh, non-insanity. So they have kept away from 
uh, ordering uh, unneeded numbers of ships. Uh, it's the first time that uh, they have uh, shown, shown tolerance in that and they have uh, kept away from over-ordering. Okay, we have examples of ship owners that cannot keep their, you know, they keep uh, their pens in their pockets or they want to order ships, but we are still at a very, very low. So I think this should, if this continues, even if, if demand for our services uh, reduces to more normal levels, so the market will be positive for quite some time. Uh, what can go wrong uh, would be uh, a wave of, of over-ordering, which will create a, uh, a difficult market condition by 2027, 2028. Mm -hmm. um, I would uh, take the, you know, what, what do we need to really improve and you know, it is for certain just, you know, building on what the captain said, you know, about um, what do we need to go right and there being less orders and, you know, really less on the supply side, you know, a derivative of that perhaps or a piece of that is, you know, really as owners, it is uh, still an evolving, okay, what will be the fuel that you burn? Um, you know, what is, what is the right type of engine to invest in? And, you know, we have to be ready to pivot it and try to imagine tonnage that's as future forward as possible. And I would also say, um, you know, improving, you know, we're, we're waiting for, you know, really this back-ended additional demand growth here and that we are anticipating kind of coming in the, still in the end here of 2023. You know, we've had very strong markets, don't get me wrong, but we're still sort of looking for um, some more barrels uh, to be demanded and, you know, that would cause OPEC to say, okay, you know, the demand is there, let's bring the barrels back onto the market. So um, what can go wrong to me, you know, uh, recessionary headwinds, you know, and, and where are those coming from? You know, is it the U.S.? Is it China? You know, wh where, where is everybody in this process of digesting the interest rates? And um, I think we've had really strong demand uh, even in this situation where we've had high interest rates, not high maybe to the 80s, but high relative to the business cycles that I've seen. So which one am I left with? <laughs> All Whichever of the above, you your choice. Yeah. Um, like I said earlier, my feeling is the market's un un unnaturally high. Um, so then I think when the markets are tight, obviously a little bit of incremental demand can send them skyrocketing or can send them plummeting on the other end. And what's hurt us in the past is the order book, as we've all said, and that comes in fairly quickly. Um, I don't want to say it's different this time, but I will say maybe there's a paradigm shift, which is the same thing, so it sounds better. Uh, yeah, there, is less, there is less shipyard capacity, and the demand for more value-added expensive assets, such as container ships, to be built in the yards, and gas ships, I think, is a lot higher than on the tanker side. And I think the demand for container ships will continue, not just past the COVID squeeze on transportation, but because they have more severe pressure on ESG issues than I think on the tanker side. And, and they're, you know, most of those are point-to-point -point assets, so they can have alternative sources of fuel faster than, than we can solve our issues. So I think it's mostly, you know, the order book that drives things. Uh, the demand for oil has gone up fairly consistently over the past uh, 30, 40 years. It's 1% a year, one and a half, and that doesn't vary significantly usually. I mean, there was a couple of, right, couple of down drops that are temporary, but the worldwide natural demand for oil seems to be fairly consistent. So uh, my view is obviously anything can happen and everything is already priced in. 
So that you, I think the view has to be, will the next event drive us you know, in, into a, a supermarket or um, are things going to normalize again? That was a pretty good non-answer. Sure. <laughs> okay, good. And it may Nic not happen in that order. It may not happen in that order. <laughs> uh, Nikos, congratulations on the 30 years of being a listed company. And turning to your comment just now about ship owners finding some capital discipline here, do you think that's been an internal transformation or has, cap has been discipline uh, been instilled from the outside by providers of capital, shipyard capacity limitations, or other factors? I think it, uh, it has to do with the uncertainty of what ships to build. So I think that, that's the bit. There's always, uh, uh, for, for large companies, financial capacity is always there, finance is, is always there. So I think it's more that uh, people do not know if they're going to be building a ship that will be around for the next 10 years or it will be attractive in 10 years. So we are in the danger in, uh, in, in the tanker segment to face what uh, the LNG market faced uh, 10, 15 years ago when every time you ordered an LNG, the technology would change before you actually took delivery of your LNG. So I think it is more of fear of that than anything else. So uh, it is a decision uh, on, driven by logic, which is uh, strange talking about ship owners, but it's true. <laughs> sure, and let's, uh, let's look beyond the next few years and, and do talk about kind of future proofing of the fleet here. Um, how are each of you evaluating future fuel technologies outside of just pure economics? And what are the more incremental upgrades that you're currently working on looking at? Yeah. Well, uh, I think I, I mentioned uh, right, right now, it reminds me of, uh, of, of the vaccine situation with, uh, with COVID. I mean, we have, uh, uh, you know, we used to have Johnson & Johnson, uh, Moderna and Pfizer, so you have to make sure if it's going to be LNG, uh, methanol, or, or um, uh, or, or biofuels or, or something else. So right now we are, we are uncertain. Uh, we're going, uh, we follow the example of uh, what our charters would do. So we just took delivery of uh, four LNG uh, fueled vessels with long contracts to a major oil company. We are in discussion with methanol uh, vessels uh, going forward. But again, I think uh, we're not taking a chance to build something uh, without uh, a contract that uh, would significantly depreciate the vessel in the 10 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would uh, dovetail there, you know, at international seaways, you know, we took delivery of three VLCCs that are dual fuel and, um, you know, that's de-risked by uh, being on a seven year, which is for us, you know, quite long term time charter uh, with a profit share element. So I think that, um, that project is is really a part of a 10 VLCC project that where the cost came in very well, you know, at 100 million for a dual fuel V, um, very economic financing, and um, you know that element of ability to have a return going to the upside, and then beyond that at Seaways, you know, we have ordered two LR1s in Korea for delivery second half 2025, and we did order them with conventional engines. That having been said, we you know, really put into that um, project that that project will have to carry a conversion on those vessels, and the vessels are, um, do have a stronger deck and bigger generators and um, come with a certification to um, convert to LNG on 
you know, the LR1 size, we don't know if there'll be LNG in the Panama Canal bunker um, ready for us or not, or whether it'll be methanol, or maybe we'll have to do some kind of carbon, um, carbon capture and storage. So, you know, we know we'll have to fight on, on the biodiesel front to uh, compete with airlines, right? Because there's, there's more demand than there is um, non-food supply on biodiesel, right? So, you know, as this evolves, we have to be prepared and ready to pivot. Nico said, um, you know, the industry's shown discipline. I think nobody knows what to do, as you, just, you two just evidenced, unless they have a long-term charter from somebody who has a lot of pressure, an oil company to um, show some uh, progress in getting to zero. Otherwise, it's a lot of money with no apparent rationale for making decision A or decision B, which is why the order book's so low. Sure. Speaking of capital allocation, just uh, Lois and Nikos, what are your thoughts at this point around prudent capital allocation? What makes your approach the best? So, you know, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. You know, we, uh, at Seaways, we have been doing a 12 cent dividend every quarter and then a supplemental dividend. So, you know, if, if you look at our last 12 months, you know, we've been close to 15% on our average market cap that has been returned to shareholders. Um, and, you know, we continue to pay down our debt. So we've been very active on both of these fronts where we've uh, returned almost 50% of you know, our net income to shareholders through dividends. And then as well, we have um, continuously improved the balance sheet, paying down debt, and uh, the, the team just concluded a uh, revolving credit facility at SOFR plus 190 the other day, which, you know, um, increases our ability to, you know, re be ready to act when we do see opportunity in the marketplace. Well, you're doing very well. I'm looking at my finance department there. <laughs> uh, well, we, we have uh, paid a dividend for the last 30 years. And uh, we initially were semi-annual when we were in Oslo. Then we were actually pushed to go quarterly. Uh, but uh, in the last five years, we are back to semi-annual again. Uh, we have, uh, in the 20 years that we are on the New York Stock Exchange, we have uh, we had a net income of uh, 2.6 billion dollars uh, in, in 20 years in a cyclical market. We have distributed 750 of that, which is an annualized uh, close to 6% year in year out. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it's it's nothing too extravagant, but I think for a cyclical industry, uh, it, it it keeps us going. And 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 ten is one of the few companies that we have never had to restructure any of our debt, any of our finance during the crisis, because we always kept uh, uh, very or significantly cash balances. I've been criticized about, about this, but I've always been telling that the only real time that you appreciate uh, cash is when you do not have it. And uh, I, I never, as long as I'm here, I will never put the, the company as the guys go in this situation. So we're always keeping a little bit more cash than we need, but uh, for good use. You know, Nikos, if, you know, uh, if we had a dividend aristocrat, you know, uh, that's the technical definition, right? You know, maybe you would fall into that, you know, for, for, for the shipping category for 30 years of, of uninterrupted dividends. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of talk today has been around uh, dividend policies and if investors are truly rewarding those who pay out higher dividends or have a more sustainable program. But let's talk a moment about valuation in general. 
Um, at this point in the tank. I just want to say we gave all our money back to our investors. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> Not all of it, Bob. I think you took a little piece. But uh, so going back, at this point in the cycle, um, analysts often take a NAV-based approach to, to look at uh, you know, valuation. Does that really make sense in an upcycle here? Should we be looking more about free cash conversion and generation, yield? I, I, I have never been a believer, uh, for reasons that I can explain without taking too much time, of the NAV. Uh, situation because uh, all of us have a different strategy on same ships. We might have, uh, it's like, uh, let's say, New York real estate. You might have two identical buildings, one of them with a 10 year lease at, uh, at, at a very positive uh, uh, level, and the other an empty building. You cannot give the same valuation uh, to both. Uh, we say shipping is floating real estate, that's why I brought this example. So, being a company that has 70% uh, of our business on long term employments, many of it, uh, lots of it with profit, sir. I believe that the, that the NAV is not a fair valuation. I think uh, you have to look at net income or at least the price, price, uh, price or cash flow much more because we are a cash flow producing, uh, you know, companies in mm. that respect. Yeah, I would, you know, our CFO, Jeff Prebor, is right there, and, and um, he would say to me that, you know, we can't tell investors uh, that we're right, and, you know, we can't tell investors how to think. Um, so I guess I would say that nav goes down as a line of sight if you're navigating, right? It's one of your lines of sight that you put on, on your chart to, to see where you are, and, and I think that it's up to us to put, sort of push the free cash flow and, you know, earnings, uh, valuation, further forward um, to, to get that to take take hold more fully. I, since I now don't have a book to talk, um, you know, when I look at the public shipping companies, and I'll invest in some here and there, I, I look at how much cash they have and what I think they're going to do with it. And, you know, we all know the personalities uh, that run the public shipping companies, and I, if I think they're going to uh, redeploy it in a good sense, then I'm happy with that. If I think they're going to do something silly with it, I'm not going to buy their stock no matter what discount they're at and what, how much cash they have in the balance sheet. And I, I think you know, classic, classic corporate finance theory says that cash on a balance sheet, if it's too much, trades at a discount because it's better off in the investor's pocket than in, in management's pocket because otherwise they would, I mean, past the you know, reserve, whatever you think the reserve should be. So that, that's my view on it. And that counts into NAV also. You brought up uh, personalities in the industry, Robert. I uh, just want to hear your thoughts around maybe broadly speaking um, where the industry is today from a G standpoint in the ESG formula here. Um, are there any outstanding governance issues that you think still need to be addressed to attract uh, more institutional capital into the shipping market? Generally, most of the larger well-capitalized companies I think are run very, very well. It's these sort of uh, small spin-offs with one, two, three ships that are a disaster, and I don't think help our industry at all. They certainly don't help some of my fellow panelists with the reputation they get in, in, in the press, and the major press, but um, I think most of the names that we all deal with are, are really in good shape with good leaders right now. But the, the smaller companies are a problem. Smaller like one, two, three ships that are spin-offs that, that constantly dilute themselves. Those are the issues. Lois or Nikos, any response to that as well? Well, 
you know, I guess I would say that as a publicly traded company, you know, you have, I call them the report card people, you know, ISS, Glass-Lewis, and, you know, really uh, thought leaders out there that are saying, okay, you know, um, you know, you, you must have strong governance, uh, no related party dealings, you know, and th these are things that, you know, INSW has a long legacy from OSG, so it was always pub publicly traded in, an, in a different way, and so that consciousness has always been there, but you're also being driven by um, investors, by policies being put in place to, to help you along your way, should, should you not think that it's important. Well, I believe there's, uh, the industry has gone a really long way uh, in, in the last at least 30 years that, uh, that there were, at the time we started perhaps a handful of, of publicly listed companies around the world, not only here in the, in the, in the US. I think we went public in 93, TK uh, followed in 94, and I think this generation of companies uh, have created a very significant peer group uh, at least on the tanker, in the tanker segment, you have uh, you know, a dozen companies mm -hmm. that are in this, uh, we call it uh, in soccer terms, the, the Champions League of, uh, of, um, of, of public companies that uh, follow, I think, the rules, or do the reporting, and it's correct. And, uh, you know, after that, uh, it's a free world, and uh, the shareholders can decide if they want to invest or what, whatever you mention. Uh, there's nothing that we can do to stop them, but I think the industry has moved a long way to create a good corporate uh, structure uh, for uh, the larger companies. So new building asset prices remain pretty high here, especially when you're adding on alternative fuel technologies. Financing is now more expensive with interest rates where they're at, and there seems to me to be risk in the out years due to regulations and, be and behavior centered around reducing carbon in general, not just in the shipping industry, but in the economy in general. Uh, you're talking about long-lived assets here, and I put to you a question, which comes first, peak oil demand or peak crude tanker fleet growth? Well, I, I think we are, we are uh, quite far from the peak uh, oil tanker growth uh, uh, right now. So my view is that uh, if things continue to go, but the, Everything changes <laughs> very fast, as we've seen mm -hmm. in the last week. If things continue to go the way they have been going, I think uh, the, uh, we will see oil peak demand uh, uh, surpassing uh, any supply from uh, supply of tonnage. Yeah, I, you know, from, from everything that you know, DNV and IEA and OPEC, and you know, really looking at everybody, um, kind of in their projections of. Uh, liquids, oil demand, you know, looks to peak somewhere around um, 2028, 2030, and, and um, looks like the crude fleet has already peaked, you know, if you look at the order book and, you know, the lack of orders therein, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, just to expand further on that, if you might, Lois, um, so do you see ordering in the future being fleet replacement at this point and not growth? I mean, right now we're not at fleet replacement. So if you take the, you know, and there have, you know, the, in 2023 we've seen a, a lot more ordering, what is what we would say. But if you look at the total tanker order book, it's five percent. So, you know, uh, an oil tanker either in 20 or 25 years, you should be 
um, replacing four to five percent per year, not you know, that's the entire order book, and, and now we're talking into well into 2026, right? So that's, a, a you know, three years out. So um, that is the least that I have seen in 30 years. But, but eventually they have to correlate because the oil has to move, and that means either even if they don't Correct. correlate in the short run, they have to correlate in the long run, or else ships will last longer. We had, you know, too many ships in 07, 08, 09. Mm. And then no orders for a while. There's a big, you know, recession in our industry, so they have to correlate. Given as long as the trade routes don't change and ton miles, you know, are actually correlated. Trade will not stop. Trade, trade, oil is going to move, so that means the ships won't get scrapped as fast. That's all. Speaking okay. of scrapping, Robert, so we've been thinking a lot about uh, increasing regulation as it affects the shipping industry, but it seems to me that there'll be increasing regulation around greening of the shipbreaker industry and recycling industry. We also have several segments, including tankers, dry bulk containers, et cetera, with aging fleets. So is everyone going to be able to rush out to the scrapyard when it comes time to scrap a ship, or do you think it'll be more difficult over time? I, I, well, we all know the regulations are getting tighter and tighter. Um, I've read different projections that scrap markets will be tighter in the future because the, I mean, again, you look at 07, 08, 09, the, the big bubble of ships that have were built then, and they may last 20 years or 21, 22, 23 years, but they'll be scrapped around the same time. So there could be, could be a squeeze, especially if regulations get tighter, which they will. And no one in this room cares about regulations, or no one's afraid of regulations as long as we all know what they are, and, and they're clear. Um, the problem we have is when everyone doesn't follow the regulations, and then they get a price advantage on us. Yes, and, and I would say that, you know, the regulations continue. Um, to intensify, right? So we, we know that much for sure, right? That, you know, we were, you know, we had a trajectory, you know, with IMO and it's all, you know, it's all laid out and you're, and you're you know, have your target and then, you know, annually that is now increasing in the way you measure it. And it will only become more and more rigorous and intense, you know, on the tanker space. And um, since we were talking recycling, uh, I do think that it's already driving change, right, where the Hong Kong Convention has already made a substantial change in how ship recycling is actually executed on the ground. And, and the scrap market doesn't drive the freight market. The freight market drives the scrap market. And whether you get three, four, five, six hundred dollars a ton, it, it makes a difference. But at the end of the day, that, those extra hundred bucks a ton on the, on the margin doesn't drive the scrap formula. No. I don't think we can conduct this panel without mentioning the, uh, the front line Euronav deal. So I'd like to get your general thoughts around, is that, that deal good for the industry as a whole, good for the, the sector? And uh, you don't have to necessarily talk directly about your peer, but general thoughts. I've never heard of them. Hello. <laughs> 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 Uh, I believe that the the tanker market or the shipping market is uh, such a fragmented uh, side of the business with so many ships. Uh, it is always uh, good to be able to have uh, large companies. Uh, it helps in, as far as operation is concerned and uh, it, it helps as far as uh, uh, commercial control of assets. Uh, now, uh, I have always been a, a big uh, supporter of pools. I mean, you do not go, need to go out and spend billions of dollars 
to control and have the same result uh, on a fleet, you could do it by actually pooling, and I think it has been done successfully in the past, uh, you know, 100 or 150 mm -hmm. VLs or uh, you know, 200 uh, Suez Maxes to make a, a difference in, in the market. So I, I would rather spend more time in, uh, in uh, you know, working in commercial uh, discussions uh, rather than uh, uh, try to pull assets together through um, uh, <coughs> uh, mergers or, or acquisitions. Uh, but you know, th this is uh, my view. But I believe that the being uh, having more uh, bigger and more commercial control on assets is positive for the tanker market. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say that. Um, you know, I think both uh, Euronav and Frontline, you know, amazing powerhouse tanker companies. You know, we've been partners with Euronav on FSO joint ventures in Tankers International for over 20 years and, you know, have, have really worked together very collaboratively, to your point, you know, Nikos, and I, I you know, from all appearances, um, the deal that struck looks to be uh, a fair representation of, of where uh, values are today. We, we've done a lot of business with both of them also. It, I, I think at the end of the day, the people who have the money and on the ships seem to have gotten a deal where they both like the assets that they received and the direction that they're headed, which is um, a lot more peaceful than a battle for the next five years, which yeah. would, have, would have been a disaster for everybody. So is further consolidation likely or no? Because you mentioned the pooling. Do you think there's uh, a lot more scope for commercial cooperation? I am, as I said, I'm a big supporter. However, pools are like an umbrella. People actually go under it when it rains, when things are bad. And then as soon as the market uh, gets better, they all close the umbrella and, and uh, you know, stop pooling. Uh, you know, I think uh, pooling is a good thing for the industry. And uh, you know, it should be supported through the good days and the bad days. You know, as a dedicated pooler, you know, I, I would simply say that um, you know, we really look to ally ourselves uh, with, uh, you know, different pools where, you know, we either have an ownership interest or we, we're joint venture partners and, and really try to work collaboratively to, um, to get the highest TCE and, and really optimize. So. And, and they're extremely efficient for someone like ourselves who want to do smaller fleets of ships and we can plug and play, you know, very, very efficiently. Um, and the pool system has become very sophisticated mm -hmm. so that you really do get your correct pro rata share of, of revenues. I mean, it's a self-correcting mechanism. If the pool partners aren't happy or if someone's on the short end of the stick or mm -hmm. a certain group of asset holders don't like the way their points are allocated, they're going to leave. So it's a real good collaboration, and the pool meetings are spirited but generally friendly. Um, everyone understands that they're better off in one common marketing pool than out, on, out by themselves. It also enables financial investors like ourselves to be able to buy assets, uh, get them into a pool right away, and then when we want to sell, we can take them out. So it gives us the liquidity to buy and sell assets without looking at a staff of thousands to support, you know, back at home base. So we, we really like it. We're running a bit short on time here, so I think we'll end the panel with that. Thank you very much for your time today, panelists. Thank you.